Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for listening. As always, really appreciate it. This week I'm interviewing Bern Callahan. Now, he comes to us with quite the uh, quite the story. He was a Catholic priest. That is kind of what he came to naturally. He came from a large Catholic family. He became a priest. He was uh, ordained. He, he did that for, for several years, I believe four years. We'll talk a little bit about that. But then he had kind of a revelation that that isn't something he wanted to do anymore. And he kind of did a... A complete change and uh, and became a a teacher in the Buddhist community. So it was just it was a fascinating conversation. Obviously, to go from being a Catholic priest, not just you know somebody who practiced the Catholic faith, but to actually be a priest, to completely leaving that, not just the priesthood, um, not not just the Catholic faith, but to leave you know Christianity as a whole. And become a Buddhist teacher. Um, I, I knew I had to speak with him, and it was a pleasure to speak with Bern. He's going to tell us kind of his journey as a Catholic priest. He's going to tell us his journey as a, a Buddhist teacher. He's going to talk about kind of the differences and the similarities between both. He's going to talk about kind of his passion, you know, now for uh, Buddhism. He's going to talk about books that he's written. He's written a bunch of books as well. Some of them are historical fiction that he has, you know, looked at some some historical figures. A lot of people in the religious community, whether it's Christianity or or others, and uh, and given them a, I guess, a, a problem to uh, to figure out. So that's where the fiction comes in, and uh, and quite the problems that he creates. It's uh, quite the undertaking. I'll just say that I uh, I'll leave you to to hear a little bit about those books here in just a bit. Uh, it was it was really fascinating to speak with him. Um, beyond those books, I, he's got so much. I'm, I'm forgetting everything that we even talked about. But beyond those books, he's written a few books about how to meditate correctly and, and problems that uh, that people have with that. He's written books about kind of the history of of the Buddha and uh, and kind of making it you know something that the modern world can understand a little bit more. Um, uh, we're going to get to all of that. I don't even want to kind of do a summary because he talked about so many amazing things. Um, but just the overarching Catholic priest to Buddhist teacher is is a fascinating one, and uh, it is quite the fascinating tale. So let's get right to it. Here is Bern Callahan. I'm here today with Bern Callahan. Mr. Callahan, how are you? I'm excellent. Good. If you would, just introduce yourself. Oh, I'm a... Uh... Retired fellow living in Atlantic Canada. I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and grew up, spent the first half of my life there, and then uh, married a Canadian woman and uh, have moved all around Canada for the last 30 some years and wound up here on the beautiful Atlantic coast where today it's very snowy and cold. Mm, yeah. Spring, it's... In, spring in Canada. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in Indiana. We already kind of talked about that, but it's been a rough rough week here because what thursday it was 60 yesterday it was 18 today it's going to be 40 so 
It's just, yeah. it doesn't know what it wants to do. I think we all kind of have to deal with that a little bit at this time of That's year. Right. I, I want to ask you, I mean, obviously kind of the, the headline here, we're going to talk a lot about um, kind of your, your work in, in Buddhist teaching. Um, but early on, the headline, I guess, is that you are a former Catholic priest. Um, I want to kind of just talk about that early journey uh, and what uh, what inspired you to, I guess, join the, the cloth at that point, uh, and then we'll kind of get to, to how you moved away from it. Okay. Well, I'm the, uh, I'm the youngest of six children in a um, Irish Catholic family in Philadelphia. And uh, as my family would say, there was religion in the family. So mm-hmm. I had two priest uncles and a nun who was an aunt who was a nun. Uh, they were all on my mother's side, and there was a lot of uh, devoted religious uh, belief on my father's side. So I grew up in a very, very Catholic family. And um, just from my earliest years, it was you know something that really captured my imagination and my heart. Uh, I thought that the the church was kind of magical, and I wanted to be more part of it. So right after I graduated high school, I sometimes look back and shake my head and go, well, there were other choices, but the choice I made was to go into Catholic seminary. And I spent eight years at the seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Um, had wonderful teachers. Um, I often tell my friends, it doesn't matter where I went, people go, where'd you go to school? No one knows St. Charles Borromeo Mm -hmm. seminary, but I say it's when. So I went to my undergraduate in a schedule and a reality that approximated the 14th century. So I feel like a time traveler. (laughs) And then in my graduate school, we moved significantly forward to the mid 1600s. So so I feel like a cultural immersion into the roots of our uh, North American, European, Western culture uh, with lots of language studies and excellent theology teachers. And uh, I came out really happy and on fire for being a minister. Mm. And how long were you you a, a priest? Four years. Four years. Well, let's just move right to the to the end of it. What uh, I guess what inspired you to to leave and, and look at, at other callings? Well, you know, I wasn't I wasn't trying to leave. I mm. was I wanted to stay. Um, I had very early in my spiritual training, uh, I had been given a copy of a book on how to do Zen meditation. And there were lots and lots of very credible authors like Thomas Merton and um, uh, I don't well, don't go down a list of authors, but people who are highly credible in the Catholic world who said, sure, you can do Zen and be a Catholic. And so I did. And you just you're just meditating. And so for 12 years, I did that. And in the oh, or longer. Um, math is not my best skill, Uh, somewhere in the fall of 1984, so three years after I'm ordained, um, and it was actually very close to Halloween, I was in my car driving to go visit my parents. My parents were quite elderly and I would go visit them every week. I was teaching in a Catholic high school and I could take a weekend Saturday and go help them fix something in the house or do errands and things like that. And I was driving late at night through this retirement, past this retirement community in New Jersey. And I remember it because it was called Leisureville. Mm. And I call this my head on collision with emptiness just outside Leisureville. Mm. So I'm driving, I'm very relaxed. It's late at night after a long week at work. And 
all of a sudden, and this is the result I know later of 12 years of sitting Zen, I have three very fast realizations, like at the speed of the, those snapping fingers. So the first one was the essence of my experience, the essence of religious experience is coming from inside of me. Or as it says in one of my books, all religion is a story and I'm telling my story. Right. So that was the first one. This is at about 60 miles an hour. So 100 feet down the road, I can do better than a cranky, patriarchal, anti-sex, no fun God. Mm. Like if I'm telling the story, why am I stuck with that character? The character that's anti-gay and anti-women priest and, you know, the whole thing. Like, oh, why am I there? I'm gone. So in about 300 feet, I went from being a devout believer and I, that's the collision with emptiness, because those are key insights into the teaching on emptiness. It's like, you're making up the story. The story's up to you. What do you want? Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, I, I'm still on the road, still driving to see my mom and dad. I walk in the door an hour later, because I was halfway between my church where I was living and where they lived. They don't have a clue. Their priest's son walked in the door, and their priest's son had actually left the ministry a hundred uh miles back or 60 60 miles back right 100 kilometers back so it took me about six months uh because i was teaching i had you know 200 students a day roughly and uh you know teaching teaching high school religion to and preaching on sunday to i don't know a thousand people and lots of people i knew and it was a whole world to unravel mm -hmm. so the the collision with emptiness was like as at a moment and then the unraveling took six months. And six months later, uh, I resigned from ministry. Mm, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I want to move on to the to the next thing, but I, I want to just obviously it took six months because it's not like, you know, just leaving your leaving your factory job for another one. It's a very different thing. What was that like, that process? Were you just very comfortable in, in what you were doing and you knew that that was what needed to happen? Um, in those six months, did you ever kind of question whether that was what you, whether you were making the right decision? Obviously you, mm -hmm. you know, you came from a family who that was kind of ingrained in the fabric of everything. So I, I, I can only imagine that that was tough and, and how tough was it for your family too? Oh, it was very tough for my family. I, I look back on it and there's lots of things I think I might have done better, might've been kinder, more skillful in how I communicated, um, it was very challenging because essentially my entire world dissolved. Mm. And uh, there's a Tibetan teaching about what happens at death. And it's like, well, this world that you're in now goes away and you wake up in the in-between, which they call the bardo. And um, it's not the same world. <laughs> feels like you, but everything has changed. Um, so I, I remember the day after I resigned, and uh you know all my clothes were black man <laughs> like, mm. that's all i wore and i was like oh i get to wear something different so i i went to the mall and the week before i had gone to the mall i was a you know friendly high school teacher to a lot of the kids who worked in the you know the stores and you know restaurants and i would see people i knew and it was hey you know father you know let me buy you an ice cream and it was like great right I go into the mall the day after, I am invisible. I am a ghost in my former world. Mm. And that was like, oh. 
So I have left one world and stepped into another. And that was, that was both challenging and delightful mm. and scary and fun. Yeah, I could see, I could see both yeah. ways where it would be kind of freeing, but then also a little bit scary. So yeah. that's, that's interesting for sure. I want to know kind of after that, what exactly your, your journey has been. I spoke with, it's been, I don't know, almost two years ago in this podcast, but I talked to an American um, who went to, uh, where did, I think he went to India or Tibet, but he became a, 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 a Buddhist monk and was in the monastery and all of that. So what exactly has been your journey within the, the Buddhist faith? Well, I, in, I, I encountered in Philadelphia a, um, a Buddhist community that was practicing in English and trying their best to translate the Buddhist teachings into our Western culture. Mm. Um, you know, I had sat Zen for, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years, and, but I didn't want to be Japanese. I didn't want to have to learn Japanese. I didn't want to have to do all the rigors of, you know, jumping into yet another culture. So when I found that this Buddhist community in Philadelphia and they were doing everything in English and they just wore regular clothes and, you know, they had a program of education that, you know, they took you through. And uh, that's that community is uh, today. It's known as the Shambhala community. Back then it was it had a Tibetan name. Um, I think it was Dharmadhatu, uh, which is the space of of awake intelligence in Tibetan. And so that that would have been too long a name. Dharmadhatu was too foreign. Right? Today they call themselves Shambhala. Anyway, they had a progressive series of trainings and uh, weekends of, you know, learn how to do this meditation, do the next one. That eventually led to a month-long retreat. That led to a three-month training program and how to do the advanced teachings. And that was in Colorado. So I had found myself a very good job and I had to resign my job in 1988 to go to this training. And I'm very grateful all these years later that uh, I was working for State Farm Insurance and my uh, manager said, well, the same job won't be here when you get back, but a job will be here for you when you get back. Mm. And I was like, oh, that gave me a lot of confidence. So I went and feel really lucky because that's when I met my wife. It was three years after I had resigned from priesthood and uh, uh, we fell in love. We both had things to finish. Uh, so I came back to Philadelphia area for two years and worked again for State Farm and then eventually moved to Canada to be with her. And uh, so that was 1991. And in 1997, I began the process of a three year meditation retreat, which is the classical Tibetan training for the last couple hundred years and how to train a teacher. And so I finished that in 2003. Pema Chodron, who was the resident teacher at Gempo Abbey, that's where I was doing my retreat, asked me if I would stay on and be the executive director. So I, I did. And that was a very interesting gig for two and a half years. Mm. And when that was over, then it's, you know, I was a young man at 51, I think, you know, now I'm 69. So a long time ago. Uh, but looking around going, well, there's the rest of my life. What mm. do I do? And I went back into work for myself. I was working for myself as a therapist and counselor in Vancouver. I added a business degree so I could do uh, business coaching and went back to work. Mm. Yeah. And I want to, I want to ask you, I want to talk about your, your writing here in a minute too, but you, I mean, I feel like you have the unique perspective of going through two different, and I, I want to use the word religion loosely, because I know, you know, I've talked mm. to 
to Buddhists before, and it's, some people are going to say that's not necessarily a religion. Um, but you've been, you've you've went through two different religions or two different faith-based things, teachings and and seminaries, so to speak, monasteries, seminaries, which mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people have probably done. So I wonder, just kind of having done both, w- what similarities you saw, and then also what uh, vastly differences you saw there. Well. You know, all, I believe, thank you, it's a wonderful question. Uh, I believe all religions have a similarity in terms of, um, you know, their advice on how to behave and live a decent life. You know, so how to be a good man or a good woman, how to love your your family, your neighbors, your be a you know good citizen in your country. It's, you know, it, it varies from culture to culture, but it has a theme of here's how you're a good person. Underneath of that, I think both, you know, so that's more external, uh, internal, uh, both faiths. And I, I think Buddhism is a religion, but, you know, I don't really think that the title religion or not religion is that important. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what you call a duck or, yeah. or for Shakespeare, a rose, a rose is a rose. Mm-hmm. So inside of both of them, there is a deep appreciation that there is an aliveness or a quality of heart knowing that is available that is beyond the merely physical that there's more to life than meets the eye and um and both of them have very uh, advanced teachings on how to connect with that the key difference between the two is connected to that story about my head on collision with emptiness in religions of the book islam christianity uh, uh, and judaism a major part of the source of that of, of divine aliveness is outside it's an external deity right? and inside of in buddhism the uh, direction is more within that that aliveness you can find within yourself so you're not relying and i'm not relying today on an external deity for guidance. But both religions are still trying to to touch that aliveness, that spirit. So in the book that I wrote about St. Paul, you know, it's the one of the things Paul keeps saying to his uh, to his disciple and lover Timothy is that religion's a story and be very careful how you tell the story. I say it better in the book, but I, I don't have the book memorized. You know, that the story you tell can be like a prison or a garden. You're building a wall. And are you building a wall that makes a garden that enhances that encounter with the aliveness within? I think in that book, I call it the divine spark. Or are you building a prison that tries to keep it in and keep everybody else who's not in your tribe outside? Um, yeah. So I think that's the difference. Is the spark within or is the spark externally sourced? Yeah, I, I like that. I think that's a, a pretty simple explanation that people will, will understand. And I want to kind of just briefly touch on what what I said a minute ago, just in case people haven't listened to, to other episodes and, and with that uh, Buddhist monk, because as far as as Buddhism being a religion, I don't want it to sound like, you know, I was saying that it's it's less than because it's actually the opposite where what he was talking about and what you kind of lived through, too, was you can almost practice buddhist teachings and be you know a buddhist and also be a part of another faith and that's why it gets a little bit interesting whether it's a religion because it doesn't really like make you be one thing and that's kind of what i talked to him about i think he might have been catholic he wasn't Mm -hmm. a priest but he said you know as a catholic 
they wouldn't want me to be a Buddhist. But as a Buddhist, they could care less whether I was any other religion at, at the same time. So that's why it was a little bit. That's what I meant by I wasn't sure whether it was religion, not that it's less than. So I just wanted to be clear with that. Yeah, that's very clear. And that's a, that's very helpful to say. I used to tell my, and I still do tell my meditation students if they're practicing Catholics, it's like, we, we like you. Yeah. You're welcome inside our tent. Uh, <laughs> however, that other organization, they have a law against this. Right. And, um, you know, you have to deal with that on your own. Like, I, I'm not going to go fix the Vatican. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my job, man. Um, and it's, in, it's interesting that, uh, you know, that spirit of inclusiveness. We have a, this relates to something that's very close to my heart and what I'm interested in. And I, I think of it as a cultural translation. So when we think of religion in the West, and the, the big three of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, those religions, because they have an external source that they believe they are tapped into with the truth, they become very exclusive. Like you can't be X and be Y at the same time. You can't be X and Y or Z or Z in America at the same time, right? It's, I'm so Canadian, I now say Z. <laughs> um, it's, you know, you have to choose. That's a very Western monotheistic point of view. But in the East, in China or Japan, in China, yeah, I'm a Buddhist and I'm a Taoist. I'm following the teachings of Lao Tzu. And oh, and I do Confucianism. And you ask me what religion I am? Oh, you want to know where I go to the temple? You don't want to, oh, well, I go to the Buddhist temple, but I take the Taoist medical advice and I'm following Confucian ethics. Now, which one am I? Mm. And Japan has the same thing. So lots of other cultures. So Japan has uh, uh, the religion of Shin or Shintoism and Buddhism. And then there's the warrior, you know, spirit of uh, Budo. Uh, which one am I? Well, I'm all three. Hmm. Oh, and, and I could be a Christian too. Because, you know, from their point of view, it's a big tent. Yeah. So it's, that's, a, that's the cultural translation is to go, oh, there are ideas like am I in or am I out that change from one culture to another. And I, I like the idea, I, as an example, if I may, I know I'm going on about this, sure. the teaching on emptiness, which is key to understanding Buddhism. Emptiness is a horrible translation of, of a Sanskrit idea that is more related to zero than, the, than what we think of as empty. So there was a philosophical concept that uh, what you really experience in life is an open potentiality that anything could happen. There wasn't anything solid you could hold on to. So it's empty of a solid permanent thing, but it's full of potency and possibility. It's more like the number zero than, uh, than what we would think of as like a blank slate or empty. And so when I'm working with my students, I, I talk about open, empty, full. You know, I never just say emptiness because emptiness leads you to, well, there's nothing there. And it's like, no, no, of course, you're here, I'm here, we're having a conversation. Like only somebody who was sort of blinded or, or struck dumb would be able to deny that. But I have no idea that I, what I'm going to say next, and I have no idea what your next question is. It's like, oh, the moment's open. And it's, I'm not, I can't hold on, you know, this isn't scripted. We're not like, uh, we're going to say this next, right? It's more fluid and dynamic and then it's full of possibility. So this moment itself is the story that we're telling 
and you're going to pull on whatever comes out of you and I'm going to pull on the best of what comes out of me. And then together we have this dance that we call a conversation. Exactly. Well, here's the next question. We'll see what we pull out of you. You you talked about how, you know, in, in Eastern religion, Eastern world, that it, you don't have to necessarily pick anything. And I want to kind of go back to you and in, in what you picked and when you, you moved on um, from, from your previous choice. And that is, you know, you, you talked about how you weren't really sure but when when you were grappling with with your your choices, how you felt about, you know, your vow of chastity. You weren't sure about how you felt about, you know, the teachings about gay marriage. Would you think it was easier for you to just kind of leave it completely behind and go for, you know, what, what you did, which is kind of a whole different part of the world's religions? Or do you think it would have been easy to take like a step down and, you know, look at being a Lutheran or being an Episcopalian? What, what do, you, do you think it was easier just to completely break away? Or do you think it would have been easier to kind of maybe just take a step down, if you would, which I hate to say step down, but maybe a, a religion that <laughs> no, was a little bit more mean. open? Yeah. Well, you know, I think there would have, I think other people would have been able to make the choice to switch religions uh in a very honorable way like they could have done it and felt good about themselves for me it was really a choice of integrity uh i after the head-on collision with emptiness i didn't believe anymore and so i spent six months uh doing my best to act out the role of being a priest but the heart of it was gone and the longer i had that experience the less i was able to simulate uh the belief and then, you know, as it, when I didn't believe, and this is um, a little challenging to talk about, but uh, I didn't really believe in the authority of the Pope or his representative in Philadelphia, the Cardinal Archbishop. Like, if I don't believe in God, the Pope's authority is from God, the Archbishop's authority is from the Pope. So I was sort of like pulling out the bottom thing in a in a house of cards. It's like the whole thing collapsed. And when I stopped in that belief and I began to look at some of the teachings, like, well, what is this thing about the gays? And I was like, there's nothing in the Bible that, that justifies the condemnation and hateful behavior. Uh, you know, some very odd verses uh, that are very difficult to translate culturally. And, you know, it's, it's like out of a million words, we pick 50 and use that to build this whole, you know, uh, edifice of rejection and hatefulness. There's also nothing in the Bible about why women shouldn't be priests. In fact, in the early days, they were. And if you, you know, don't believe just because some guy in Rome says so, then you begin to look and go, why are they doing this? And what did I, as one individual in Philadelphia who no longer believed, what kind of leverage did I have? And that kept taking me back to what's going to lead me to a life where I can actually live out my beliefs. Mm. Now, somebody else, they might have, you know, they might have decided they didn't believe in the authority of the Pope, but they still believed in an external God. Well, then that changes the whole equation. And then maybe she or he would choose to move from being a Catholic to a Episcopalian or Lutheran or, you know, in good faith. But for mm -hmm. me, it wasn't a good faith possibility. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that for sure. Um, let's kind of move on to your your books. I know, and I want to kind of put them in two different 
categories because you kind of have two. You have historical fiction and then you have some nonfiction writing. Let's talk about historical fiction first. I think okay. you've kind of highlighted some some people in, in history and kind of talked about maybe their their struggles because we don't really talk a lot about that. We normally talk about people's triumphs and act like they're kind of superhuman. So talk a little bit about, about that. Well, yeah, I... You know, I retired in 2015, and shortly before that, I began to write. Uh, so I cranked out this novel about St. Paul. And as I contemplated St. Paul, and it later, later led to a novel about St. Patrick, and now I'm writing about this Buddhist saint um, whose name is Padma. Uh, so I was contemplating Paul, and I was like, what do we really know about him? You know, for most people, and this was sort of like the question that starts the novel is like, what really happened that made him go from somebody who was a dedicated persecutor of the early Christian faith to its most successful entrepreneur spreading the spreading the news? So when Paul when Paul was persecuting the Christians, I don't know. I mean, no one has a number. I'm going to say there were 200 of them sort of evenly split between Jerusalem and Damascus. And he's sent on a mission by the religious mafia of Jerusalem to go get rid of the people in Damascus. Hmm. He's supposed to arrest them, persecute them, execute them, whatever. He's on a mission. And halfway between, somewhere on the road between there, he gets knocked off his horse. This is the story in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, blinded by the light, falls to the ground, and three days later, he's a Christian. So veritably overnight, he goes from being the hitman of Christians to the Apostle Paul. What happened? And you know, you, you read normal stories and it's this sort of, um, there's a category in religion uh, or in, in literature, that literally the name means stories of the saints, hagiography. And it's always like, oh, well, he had this vision and Jesus or God or somebody spoke to him and he had this internal experience and everything's wonderful. And a couple of miracles later, he's convinced. And I'm going, that's not a very good story. <laughs> As a storyteller, heroes are only interesting if they have some kind of internal struggle. You know, if a guy gets up, I'm going to switch metaphors. A guy gets up in baseball and every time he hits the home run, he gets up to bat, you go get a Coke. Mm. <laughs> you know what's happening. There's no drama. Mm. There's no story. If a pitcher, every pitch he pitches is a strike, you go out somewhere while that's happening. It's like, talk to your friend. It's, so there has to be some kind of drama, some kind of risk. And I'm looking at Paul going, what would be the tension that would cause somebody to have that dramatic of a conversion? And because it's a historical fiction novel, it should have romance, because I think that makes historical fiction fun. It should be grounded in history, but also have some, some eros in it. And so I decided, well, Paul's thing is sexual. Let's make him gay. Let's, he traveled around the ancient world. He wasn't married. Very unusual in the first century for a Jewish man to not be married, to not have a family, to be homeless, and travel around with all these other young men. I was like, oh, this is like a story from the, this is like a coming out story from the 1980s. Mm. So let's make Paul and Timothy lovers. Oh, let's write some new letters from Paul to Timothy. So the book is called The Secret Love Letters of St. Paul. And I came downstairs after I wrote the letters and my wife said to me, you are the cheekiest, if I can say bastard, 
on this. You are the cheekiest bastard in the world. You're starting your writing career by adding three chapters to the Bible. Mm. And I laughed. I was like, yeah, but they're good. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a big thing to do, obviously, is to take on something like that and then add in, add in that layer. I, I don't know. I, I agree. I think that's a, that's a pretty, pretty big undertaking. So, you know, the fun thing is when you're writing historical fiction and you start to do the research, you come across these really odd bits of historical secrets that they're right, they're in plain sight, but no one thinks about. So the premise of the book is that the love letters are rediscovered. And that causes quite a uh, uh, uproar in the halls of the Vatican. And there's this whole discussion about are gays okay or not? Because this apostle Paul was gay, and obviously, and, you know, this whole that's the premise of the story. So the love letters are discovered in a monastery called St. Catherine's in the Sinai. And as I'm researching, I had to be somewhere, right? And that monastery is the only monastery in the world that is protected by the command of the Prophet Muhammad that when the Islamic forces were conquering the Sinai and there were Christian monks there, they were, they were nice. They were kind. They took them in. They helped them. And so there is a document there with the palm print of Muhammad on it. It's called the, man, the Manumission of Muhammad. And I was like, wow, that's cool. And because of that, with all the wars that have swept over Israel and Egypt and the Sinai and Syria, the manuscripts that were in that monastery were never set aflame. Mm. They were never conquered or ransacked or taken away and sold because it was under the protection of the prophet. Mm. I said, oh, that's a good place to hide them. Mm. You know, and then the story spins out and it's, it's finding those details that sort of makes it, um, makes it fun. And, you know, and then you have to think like a good story, hopefully you can set it up in a sentence or two. So when I do the Hollywood pitch for this, it's, um, Brokeback Mountain meets the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that draws some attention for sure. Yeah, and I mean, and I, I guess you said that you in in your research. So I guess I want to kind of just set this stage a little bit better. Is it mm -hmm. something that you pretty much just completely created? Are you are you trying to to say that you think it it may be accurate, or is it all just from the head of Burn? Well, you know, I like to tell my friends that the thing about historical fiction is that it's based in history. That's why it's called historical and it's fiction. Yeah. And you get to decide. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, if I answer the question, it's not fun. Yeah, right? well, I hear you. Well, now, people... You do find it in the fiction section. Yeah, right? yeah, I hear you. Any any other books in the historical fiction area that, you're, that you want to highlight? I know that you talked about somebody outside of the Christian faith and somebody that's that's more in the Eastern faith too, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I will just take a moment to say last last year I published a book on St. Patrick and mm. I did the same thing. And my question there, uh, not to do the whole long so song and dance about Patrick is, you know, he was an escaped slave. He had been a slave in Ireland that escaped when he was about 20 years old. And then he gets sent back on a mission from the Pope and the normal reception that escaped male slaves had was immediate execution. They were, they were trouble. Like they would put ideas into the heads of the other slaves. So why didn't they kill him? That was the question that started the book. Why didn't they kill him? What did he have that was so interesting that, that wasn't lucky charms and shamrocks and, you know, leprechauns leaping all about? 
and also where were the women in the story? So then St. Patrick has to have a struggle. Mm. And that's a fun book. That's called Shamrock. Um, and I got done with my, my first two Christians and I thought, well, I can't, I have to be ecumenical in who I pick on. <laughs> so there is a character in uh, Himalayan Buddhism whose name is Padma Sambhava, and it means the one born in a lotus. And there's this whole myth about his, it's sort of like King Arthur, you know, pulling the sword out of the stone. This kid shows up floating on a white lotus. And uh, that's the title of the first book, The White Lotus. And it's a trilogy about him. And he led a life that is, uh, God, it's so, uh, it's, it's mythical in its proportions. And one person, you know, as a, as a religious storyteller, or a hagiographer, historical fiction novel guy, I know this can't have just been one guy. Because he'd had to have lived like three or 400 years long. And, you know, he was a... He was a, an orphan and then a prince, and then he gets thrown out of being a, a king because he kills somebody. They, they wouldn't let a murderer sit on the throne. And then he's like doing these weird practices in India. And then he has a love affair with a nun. And then he gets invited to Tibet and he becomes a magician. And it's like, it's a long story. So it's actually three books. And the first one, uh, which I, is called The White Lotus, which is a translation of his name, um, the Hollywood pitch for that, it's sort of um, the sword in the stone and um, Game of Thrones. So King Arthur and the Game of Thrones mm. um, or Prince Arthur and the, and the Game of Thrones. And it's a it's really interesting when you begin to look at. So here's the conflict. And I think the interesting part of a story is always where is the conflict in the religious hero? Because the conflict is where we'll identify with them. So the conflict for Paul was his orientation. The conflict for Patrick is a sense of guilt and shame over something that happens early in his life. The conflict for Padma, the lotus, well, in Buddhist myth, he's born enlightened. And I began to ask myself, what would that be like? You wouldn't fit in. Like everybody else is choosing up sides in a game of basketball or football, or you just don't fit in. You're, you're not only the last one picked, they don't pick you because either you always win because you're enlightened or you, you, you're not very competitive, so you're not a very good player. It's like the way people think about enlightenment is like, what would it be like to be an eight-year-old or a 16-year-old and have this knowledge that meant you never fit in? What would your world be like? Mm. And uh, the biggest thing inside of that for me would be the aloneness of it all. So his conflict has to do with being lonely. And that's what makes him very compelling. And my friends who've read the, the proofs of the book go, we really like this guy. Well, yeah, because he's like the sad clown in a circus. Like everybody feels sorry for him and they want to be nice to him. And all this magical stuff is happening around him. So it makes for a really interesting story. It's, it sounds like it. Yeah, I, 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 I feel like, I don't know. I don't even know how you, you decided to go into the, that, that path of, of creating these different narratives. I, I like it. I think that's interesting. It definitely makes for interesting reads for sure. I want to move into your um your other side of things and that is your your nonfiction. i think that uh i want to kind of talk about the meditation side of things i think you're teaching okay. people how to meditate in a in a i guess a, a 
not a quick manner, but how to meditate effectively, quickly. And that's through this. Is it a book that's called Meditation is Freedom? Uh, no, Meditation is Freedom is a new project that I'm launching. It's a online teaching uh, group. Okay. Um, so I'm inviting people to join me uh, for 10 weeks. And uh, in 10 weeks, I am so confident that they can learn how to meditate and place their attention on an object, a meditation object, and, and let it stay there for up to an hour. Mm. That uh, if it doesn't work, they can have their money back. Mm. No questions asked. Uh, because it's not about the money. Um, so, and, and it's a series of very old teachings uh, that are called the nine stages of abiding calmly, of having your mind just rest in a state of peaceful attentiveness. Um, then it sort of relates to what's happening with my novels. Uh, in, the, in the novels, I like to take out these themes that are universal religious themes and express them in a way that an ordinary person can grab hold of them and understand them. Uh, and in the writing on meditation or the teaching on meditation, I'm trying to take these very old techniques and translate them culturally. So that something that is available to somebody who you know reads Sanskrit or speaks Tibetan, but it's not available to somebody in Indiana or Nova Scotia or you know anywhere in the West is sort of like oh these weird ideas I have to learn this new language and it's like no you don't open empty full if you can understand open empty full you're there if you can understand the idea that everything changes then. You know, there's, you're really a long way into this, you know, teaching on how there's no permanent anything to hold on to. Um, so in meditation is freedom. It's very simple. Uh, it's training people in how to pay attention. And I'm borrowing on a set of teachings from um, this uh, Western professor where he took the ideas of meditation. And he said, well, really, all you need to understand to make this work is you need to understand that if you get in a car, how to use a gas pedal, the steering wheel, and the and the windshield. Like if you understand those three ideas, you can make this work. And then you have to actually put it in gear and go. Like you, have to, you have to do something with it. So the practice is really important. The idea in meditation is freedom is 10 sets of progressive skills. You learn one a week. And then at the end of the week, you've mastered that, you go to the next thing that builds on top of it. And at the end of the 10 skills, you should be able to rest your attention completely for an hour on some, whatever you choose to rest it on. And then we'll practice. I've taught meditation for a long time. And what a lot of meditation teachers know is that you can tell somebody how to bake a cake or cook a meal or ride a bicycle, but you never learn to ride a bicycle by reading about how to ride a bicycle or watching a video of somebody else riding a bicycle. You have to actually get on the bicycle. And so meditation is freedom is built on the idea and why I'm so confident it'll work is that I will practice with you online 30 minutes a day, Monday to Friday for 10 weeks. And at the end of 10 weeks, if you didn't get it, here's your money back, mm. right? Mm. Because everybody will get it. It's worked for thousands of years. So I don't know why anybody in Nova Scotia, Indiana, California, British Columbia, why would they be different than what's been true for us for the last 2,000, 3,000 years? Like we, it hasn't changed. It's more convenient. Right? Mm. 
I like that. I think that's really, really awesome. And I want to ask you, you know, you may have already just answered it by just the, the practice aspect of it that maybe people aren't doing, but what do you think of maybe where people are going wrong with, when it comes to being successful in it, obviously they need to take you know, your, your class, but other than that, what do you think people have done wrong in, in trying to, you know, achieve this in the past? Well, I sort of, that's a, that's an excellent question. I, I sort of go to my, uh, coach executive coach mind. And I, I think about how much of success in anything is built on being clear about what the desired outcome the target or the goal is. So there are thousands of ways to meditate. I was just talking with somebody the other day about meditation is freedom. And I said, you know, this will, you will not be enlightened at the end of 10 weeks. So like, let's relax that goal. What you will be is able to focus your attention on something. And then maybe you can do practices that will lead you to enlightenment. So this, this is like learning your ABCs, right? Learning the fundamentals of how to train your attention. So one thing that goes wrong is we're not clear. And then the other is we don't, so I'm going to give three parts to the answer, the lack of clarity. So it's, it's really helpful in every meditation that one does. And I do lots of different meditations. What is this one supposed to produce? What mental state or emotional state am I generating? What story am I telling to go back to everything's a story? Uh, the second one is you actually have to practice. And so, you know, so much is taught and it's like, well, you can just do three minutes a day or three simple breaths. And it's like, well, that's good. Three breaths is better than no breaths, but you get the result of three breaths. You get a lowering of the blood pressure and a diminishment of thought intrusion. And, but you know, five minutes later, when you're in the next, the third next email, that's gone. And so the result is really temporary. So it takes a certain amount of intensity and commitment or no real change happens. And then the third thing I would say is that we aim low. And so there was something that happened, oh, I think it was the 70s or 80s where, you know, meditation got associated with de-stressing. There was something called the uh, relaxation response. And so the meditation became about relaxing, but that's a long way from meditation being about how to open your heart or how to wake your mind to actually engage reality in the fullest way that you can. So if we're aiming for just de-stressing, being able to be calm in the middle of getting bad news, those are all desirable things, but we could aim higher. So those would be, you know, the the three points that come to my mind immediately and hearing your question that um, we're not clear of the result we're seeking. With the results we are seeking, we could aim higher. And we need to have a certain intensity of practice to make it work. Yeah, I think those are all very important things. And I want to make sure that I didn't skip over your your nonfiction books. We I meant to ask about nonfiction books and I stumbled into into meditation. So I want to make sure we talk about about those. So what okay. talk a little bit about the nonfiction books that you do. Okay. Uh, I've got a couple that are self-published and a couple on the way. Uh Again, the idea is a cultural translation of, you know, taking the ideas of the teachings of meditation or the teachings of the Buddha and making them accessible to ordinary people. So the first one is called Don't Wake Up, It Will Ruin Everything. Hmm. 
And, you know, the idea is if you're happy with your life as it is, then why do stuff that messes with it? <laughs> One of the effects of meditation, and I am sort of like the poster child of this, is that it changes your reality of who you are. So there I was happily studying to be a priest. And then I was a priest all the while doing Zen. And that was like slowly the ice was melting underneath of me. And then there was the breakthrough of, I thought it was solid, but it was actually my sense of the identity of holding on to being a priest just gone, right? So meditation actually has a powerful impact on some of the stories we tell about ourselves, especially the worries we have or the fears that we're holding on to. And if you like the reality you're in, you probably shouldn't do this. Mm. So it's, it's also a backward way of saying this could also change a reality that you don't like. Yeah. I have a friend in uh, Vancouver who's a therapist who wrote a book, 50 Ways to Be Miserable, or how, how to Be Miserable, something like that. And that inspired this book. This would be like, don't wake up, it'll ruin everything. If you like the, if you like the life you're in, right? The next book that I wrote was a more traditional, you know, I'd be talking to friends and they didn't know the life of the Buddha. And they didn't know the story and they weren't able to say what the story meant. And, uh, and I thought, oh, well, let's, let's tell the story in a way that's accessible to a 21st century guy or woman in, uh, in America or Canada or the UK or somewhere. Um, and so that book's called Touching the Earth, uh, 21st Century Buddhism. And uh, the title is based on the, you know, the moment that the Buddha wakes up, that he's, he achieves his enlightenment. The god of confusion um, rears up and says, who are you? You know, who said you could be enlightened? And he reaches down and touches the earth uh, and says, the earth is my witness. Now, what most people don't know is that, you know, Buddha was, North Indian prince, uh, the religion, we call that religion today Hinduism. I don't know what they called it back then, but they believed in a goddess of the earth. And so the goddess of the earth appears and says, yep, he did it. <laughs> and it's like calling on the, the power of the feminine and the power of open, empty, full of wisdom to say, I don't need to justify myself to confusion. I'm just awake. Now I'm going to live awake. And so it tells the story from a very contemporary point of view and then looks at some of the core teachings. There's a teaching, and this is, again, a cultural translation. There's a core teaching in Buddhism. It gives Buddhism a very bad name. It makes us seem like we're uh, bring downs and party poopers. Um, that the core nature of life is that it has a struggle, that we're unhappy. And uh, the word that got used, uh, Buddha was from a nomadic culture semi-nomadic and the uh, hole in the wheel that the axle went through if it was uh, rough it would give a very rough ride and that roughness of the ride is the word that got used and it gets translated as suffering mm. but it's a much better translation to go you know life is a rough ride that sounds like a rock and roll song I, you know, as a writer, thought, well, that's even a little bit of a stretch. I, so I, what I, how I translated it, and this is, again, a cultural translation of the idea of dukkha, the uneven axle hole, uh, is that life has a flat tire quality to it. Mm. And we've all had flats. If you haven't, I hope you never do, but you probably will, you know, <laughs> and then you just have to deal with the flat tire. Yeah. 
So, and it's like, does a flat tire ruin your entire life? No, but it puts a certain spin on things. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I like, I like all of that. And I just listening to you talk about all of these different books and, and some of the huge things that you've tackled both fiction and non, where do you, where do you get all these ideas? Does it, I mean, I, I feel like it's just, it, it takes a special kind of person just to come up with, with these struggles that you created for, you know, some of these historical characters, some of these things that you've tackled in the, in the nonfiction world. Where does this all come from? Oh, I think I am the lucky grandchild of storytellers mm. and the child of a storyteller. And then um, I had uh, wonderful teachers when I was in Catholic seminary uh, who were all, you know, good at unfolding and explaining the story. And then my Buddhist teachers and masters have been good storytellers. Mm. And, um, you know, and then they, they taught how to open my mind, you know, collectively, all of them, one, one level or another, how to sit down and open my mind to a good story and let it start to flow. Mm. So I think I'm just pulling on the richness of uh, many heritages and then letting it flow through me. Yeah. And I know there's, there's still more stories flowing through. You've got a lot more in the works. I think you've kind of touched on that a little bit, but talk a little bit about uh, some of the things upcoming. Uh, yeah. So um, the most current thing is this meditation is freedom group, which is the first one is launching in early March. I'm sorry, late March. And um you know, asking people to apply and, you know, really what I'm looking for is people who can, uh, who are interested enough in learning that they'll commit to practicing. And uh, I can help make the practice easy, but I can't do the practice for you. Mm. So it's sort of like, oh, we can, we can figure out how to do it and, and support each other, do it together. Uh, but I'm like the coach, the, the rest of the team has to show up or the game's over. Yeah. So that's that's in uh, mid-March, and then we'll probably try it again in September or October, see if we can run another one. It's a lot of it's a lot of practice together and stuff. And then while that's happening, I'm trying to publish, uh, move to publication, the three novels on uh, The White Lotus. Hmm. So the first of them is uh, getting ready to go to uh, an editor and be submitted. And um, uh, I'm hoping that The White Lotus is available uh by oh, let's say March or April of 2024. It takes about a year to once the once you actually hit the send button to the publisher for all the editorial stuff and the cover creation and all that stuff to happen. Yeah, so. yeah. So people people listening today want to hear more from you. Want to read the books that's already out and follow along and and see when the the next ones are coming. Where where do they go to follow along? Uh, well, they could, if for Meditation is Freedom, they could go to meditationisfreedom.com. That's pretty straightforward. All one word, yeah. all lowercase, meditationisfreedom.com. Yeah. And then for the books, they could probably most easily find me online as Burn Callahan. Gotcha. And if they type in um, the title of the second book, which is easier, a Shamrock, mm -hmm. you know, Shamrock book, um, Burn Callahan, they should be able to find me. Gotcha. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really, really appreciate your time. Jackson, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you, and uh, I'll look forward to listening to uh, more of you online. So that was Bern Callahan. What an interesting story. 
what a, a journey that he's been on. I, I hope you enjoyed that. Just I, I don't think you're going to hear from a lot of people who have left the priesthood and done something so drastically different. Uh, of course, there's a lot of a lot of differences when it comes to you know the Catholic faith, the priesthood, um, you know the all of those type of things that we didn't we didn't really get into any of these religions deeply. Um, I that that's not what really this podcast is about. It's not about you know teaching you a religion. It's about kind of teaching somebody's individual experience. We talked about his experience within uh, the Catholic faith and the priesthood. We talked about his experiences. Uh, in the uh, Buddhist religion, I, uh, I I I'm not going to say anything that he said is true in in either one because I I simply don't necessarily know. So that's not what this is about at all. Um, so don't take this as kind of the end all be all on on either one for for sure. Uh, I do think that he has a pretty good uh, pretty good handle on his own books. So do uh, do listen to that part and check out kind of those books if it's something you're you're interested in. He's like like I said in the beginning, he certainly came up with some some uh, controversial kind of risque and and touchy subjects when it comes to you know taking a religious figure and then giving them an issue or giving them a problem and and uh, I I uh, <laughs> I don't necessarily envy that but he seems to have a, a ton of fun with with it so uh, if something you're interested in reading go check those out links to those will be in the show notes. Links to everything he talked about when it comes to um, that meditation class and, and everything else will be in the show notes uh, so you can get in contact with Burn should you want to. If you want to follow along more with this podcast, Not Enough Podcast on Instagram, jacksonhuff.com, Not Enough with Jackson Huff on Facebook. We're everywhere there. Really appreciate you following along. Uh, leave a five-star review on Apple and on Spotify. Leave a written review on Apple. Even more amazing. Uh, but if you do nothing else... Come back next week. Sure to be another amazing guest. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think. Or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.